Alright, good evening. Let's continue tonight in our review of the Revelation beginning in chapter 9. We're going to look specifically at verses 1 through 12. What we have here is the apocalypsis. We have the revealing, the uncovering, the revelation, not of a chart of events, not the revelation of trumpets or bowls or woes or thunders or of the Antichrist. What we have here is the revelation of Jesus Christ and what it looks like when He comes in the fullness of His salvation and glory. We have the revelation of a conquering King and one who in the absolute demonstration of the sovereignty of God comes for the destruction, the derision of His enemies and the salvation of His people to establish His kingdom forever and forever. A eternal reality that is being realized in a particular moment and day in time. And we begin to see the absolute insanity of the active resistance of Satan against that sovereign rule and the establishment of his kingdom. In Romans or in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1, it says that the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. He was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. When we see the transition from the fourth to the fifth trumpet, it marks a progression of wrath. A progression of wrath from supernatural judgments upon nature and upon the world that in turn cause judgment and wrath travail for the people of this world. We see a progression from those judgments upon nature to judgments that are supernatural judgments directly upon men. You see the perfecting of the wrath of God, a wrath that is not yet finished. For the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. 
And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. The angel is none other than Satan himself. Here we see in the Revelation the first prophetic aspect, the first description of the fall of Satan. I know it's been a long time uh, since the very beginning of this study when we talked about kind of prophecy in general and the nature of apocalyptic literature, but one of the things that we need to bring back to mind is the reality of multiple prophetic aspects. That is to say that apocalyptic prophecy is concerning itself first and foremost with the revelation of eternal truths. And just like anyone who is studying any particular event like a, like a reporter or, or like a detective that is trying to get to the bottom of the story, it intends to look at these truths from multiple different angles in order to get the fullness of the picture. Here you see the first prophetic aspect of the fall of Satan, the first description of Satan being cast from heaven. There is another major one that comes in chapter 12, and it's when you put those two together that you really see the full picture of the description of the events of his fall. But here it is from the perspective of those that are on earth. When we get to chapter 12, it is from the perspective of events in heaven. The, the star that falls is none other than Satan himself. The one about which it was written in Isaiah chapter 14 how you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? Scripture makes it clear who he is. John recounts his name, both in the common Greek, the Kone of the day, as well as the Hebrew. He's called a badden or Apollyon, both names mean exactly the same thing. He is the destroyer, and he is king over a now-released massive <clears throat> demonic horde. He is the counterfeit of God. He is the head false shepherd and the very definition of rebellion. He is the destroyer, the one that Jesus spoke about in John chapter 10, verse 10, when he said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Here is the one who comes not only to kill, steal, and destroy, but is himself named destroyer. And Jesus says, I am the opposite of him. And he is the opposite of me. He comes to kill. He comes to destroy. But I come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Jesus said of him in John chapter 8, verse 44, speaking to the Jews when he said, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of 
lies. And I want you to hold on to that last thought. <clears throat> that when He speaks, just, just like what we've been talking about with men being enslaved to their own character, being enslaved to their own being, being enslaved to their own desires. When He speaks, He lies by nature because He speaks out of His own character. This is who He is. This is His nature. At the base level, He is a liar that leads to death and destruction every time. And He can't speak anything else because He doesn't have any character other than that. And when your character is to speak lies that end in destruction... That applies to everyone that you speak to, including yourself. Such is the nature of his madness. The most dangerous lie, the most destructive lie that you will ever believe is the one that you tell yourself. And because by character he is a liar and therefore speaks out of his nature, even when he speaks to himself, it is a lie that will lead to his destruction. Here we see a glimpse of what the high theologians in their ivory towers would refer to as an instant of eternity. An eternal reality about the nature of the fall of Satan that is being manifest in a temporal moment of time. Because friends, the reality is is Satan will fall from heaven because Satan has fallen from heaven. Look, follow me if you will. We'll explore the interaction between an eternal God and a temporal creation. Satan's fall is presented in the Gospel of Luke as being a past tense event. This is something that has already occurred. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Very clear in the grammar that this is something that Jesus presents as He Himself having already seen. And yet, throughout Scripture, Satan's fall is also seen as a future reality. I mean, right here in chapter 9, verse 1. This is prophetic literature. This is prophetic literature that has not yet been fulfilled. As a matter of fact, if we were just to rewind here back to chapter 6 or so, we would see that there is just a ton of things that still have to be fulfilled in the apocalyptic narrative before we get to what's going on in chapter 9. Events that have not yet been fulfilled. And yet, in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, The fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star fall from heaven to earth, and he was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And this star is nothing less than Satan himself, a bad Napoleon, a destroyer. But back in Luke, Jesus said that he already saw Satan fall like lightning. Once again, in the second prophetic aspect of Satan's fall, the one that comes from the heavenly perspective, in chapter 12, in verses 7 through 9, it is made clear to John that a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, 
and his angels were thrown down with him. It is clear that these things are yet to be. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So the question is, which is it? Is the fall of Satan past? Is the fall of Satan future? Well, for temporal humans like you and me, the fall of Satan is yet to come. But for eternal God, the answer is simply yes. Is it past or is it future? <clears throat> yes. For this is the one who said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Because God is sovereign, His will is concrete. We're not talking. Now, look. From I will say this. You know, from from a from a standpoint of means, <coughs> future outcome within the created system. I would fight you over being called a fatalist. We are not fatalists. Not from here. The friends. From an eternal perspective, the will of our God is absolute. And it will not be undone. <clears throat> because He is sovereign, His will is concrete. It is fact in eternity, even if it has not yet been revealed in time. As temporal beings, we are so caught up with time. It is so absolute to us. And the reality is, it is one more portion of the creation and completely malleable in the hand of our Lord. Time is one more construction. Just like space, just like matter, one more thing that He simply spoke into being. But because He's the one that spoke it into being, it does not bring the uncertainty for Him that it brings for us. <clears throat> Praise God for that, for this is the manner this is the means by which, which He speaks of the absolute security of your salvation and mine. I mean, we're headed there next week in Romans chapter 8, but we'll go there tonight anyway. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul says, <clears throat> right there where we were this morning, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Why? Because. For. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It is easy for us to understand that sometime in quote-unquote eternity past, that God foreknew His people. And those that He foreknew, He predestined. It is easy for us to understand that those of us who have lived up to this point that were foreknown and predestined indeed have been called. Many of us have been justified. And one day we all will be glorified. But Paul presents it all as absolute. Even to those who are 
foreknown and predestined that have not even been born yet. He spoke of us this way 2,000 years before any of us were a twinkle in our parents' eye. He said there, foreknown, called, justified, glorified. Done. Because God is sovereign, eternal, his will is fact, even if it has not yet been revealed in time. Now here we see it's revealing. Here we see what Jesus saw. A star fallen from heaven, opening the pit and releasing the first horde of demons upon mankind. The word here for pit is abyssos. Literally, the angel of the abyss. Being bottomless, we must conclude that this pit does not open to here. I had a kid ask me one time, do you think they can build a spaceship good enough to fly to heaven? And the answer is no. It's not here. You can talk about multiple dimensional realities or all those sorts of things. Put whatever dorky tag you want to put on it. The reality is it is not of this creation. And we are bound to this creation. We can't get loose from it. Not of our own accord. But he is not. This pit is not open to here. It opens to some spiritual place, some reality, some dimension that we do not understand. And you want to talk about worlds colliding. It will be a collision such as men have never witnessed. <clears throat> it is this place spoken of. It is known well by demons. It is the place spoken of in Luke chapter 8, verse 31, where it says that the legion begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss, into the abyssos, into the pit. Whatever is in this pit is so bad that even the demons themselves beg not to be sent there. It's spoken of in Jude, verse 6, when it's as a particular place of holding for a particularly nasty set of fallen angels. In Jude 6, it says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. We see the first demonic horde released upon the earth. Locusts that have the power to torment men. You know, it's the definition of judgment day, apocalyptic kind of stuff. Tails and stings, breastplates and wings. Abaddon and Apollyon is king over them. It's described. The only way John can describe it because he doesn't have any reference for it. So he doesn't even give... John doesn't even give a, a technical description. He just uses the word like over and over and over. It's like this. It's like that. This is the best reference I can give you. <laughs> like the power of scorpions. Like battle horses in appearance. They wear what look like crowns. They have faces like humans. Hair like women's teeth. Like lions. Breastplates like iron. Sound of wings that are like chariots and horses running into battle. John doesn't have adequate language to describe what he's seeing. He does the best he can to reference it. And yet, as horrible as these things are, they fall under the direct sovereign control of God. 
They will go not one step further than what they are allowed. They are released not by a jailbreak of their own authority, but only because the Lord ordained it to be so. They cannot harm anything that He doesn't want them to touch, even <laughs> seems like arbitrarily just pointing out, okay, you can't touch the grass. <laughs> right? We'll let you do all this stuff, but stay off the lawn. You can't touch the grass. You can't touch the green things. And more importantly, you can't touch anyone that has the seal of the living God on their forehead. Man, we get all bound up about the mark of the beast. Let me tell you what Satan's bound up. Satan's bound up about the mark of the lamb. Because it is, it is like iron bars this far. No farther. You cannot touch those sealed by God. Not the 144 sealed in chapter 3 and chapter 4 as well as anyone who would believe from their witness. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His Glory. The seal that God receive is nothing less than the same spirit of adoption, the spirit of His Son dwelling in us. And man, when the seal that you carry is the Spirit of God Himself, the Spirit who is sovereign over these created things, it is the only thing that will check their hand. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy 2.19 The first woe is past, John says. The second woe is yet to come. The reason that it is bound to come is because you have an angel whose character is liar and destroyer and he can speak out of nothing except for that character even when he speaks to himself. In two weeks, we will consider the nature of Satan's insanity as he tries to overthrow that which cannot be overthrown even to his own derision. Rock, you pray for us.